If you are a fan of the Dive Bar Rockstar podcast and would like to help support the show, there's a great way that you can do that and start a new fashion trend. We have a new merchandise page on the website which features t-shirts and hoodies that are available for sale on Amazon. Just click on merchandise in the top menu and all of the links will be there or go directly to divebarrockstar.com slash merchandise. Get started early on your Christmas shopping at divebarrockstar.com. Welcome to the Dive Bar Rockstar Podcast, a show exploring the lives of professional musicians of all types, touring musicians, recording artists, songwriters, engineers, bar bands, wedding bands, and anyone making their living in the music industry. Whether you've dreamed of being a professional or you already are one, this is the podcast for you. I'm your host, Eric Baines, and I hope that you not only find some entertainment here, but also some helpful tips, trade secrets, and ideas that will help you achieve your dreams. Well, it's election day, so I kind of understand if um, nobody gets to listening to this episode for 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 a few days, because um, it's kind of a big day here in the U.S. of A. and um, it should be probably so. Uh, and if you're out there voting today, if you haven't done the early voting, you know, be careful because man, the news just looks crazy, and who? Uh, it's just really, it's it's almost unrecognizable in a way, and. Uh, so, but no matter how it turns out, I, I'm hoping to be back next week and the week after that and the week after that and offering you maybe some alternative listening material to whatever the news may be. So, and with that, um, my guest today is a keyboard player, music producer, and composer who I met years ago playing in a band in Denver, and he gave me a critique of my music at the time that really forced me to step up my game. So I'm really happy to be able to check in with him this week. He spent most of his career in New York, but he has just recently moved here to L.A., and I'm very happy to have him in town. As a keyboard player, he's played with artists like Carly Simon, Phoebe Snow, the Buddy Rich Band, and he is a member of California Transit Authority, or CTA, which is a band with Danny Serafin, who's the original drummer for the band Chicago. And they do Chicago music, but they also have their own original stuff. They've got two records out, so check that out. CTA, they're, they're incredible. If, you, if you're a big fan of early Chicago or late Chicago, um, you really want to hear that band. As a producer, he's worked with many great artists such as Carly Simon, Judy Collins, Tony Bennett, Peaches and Herb, Phoebe Snow, Johnny Winter, and many others. He's also had huge success as a composer for film and TV. And uh, that's what we're going to talk a lot about today. And some of his credits include Body Snatchers, Dangerous Games, Wigstock, Ride for Your Life, The Vampire Murders, HBO's Cat House and Real Sex, a couple of my favorites, uh, Tale of Two Pizzas, and he's written major show themes like uh, the theme to the Rosie O'Donnell show, Face the Nation, Extra, Jenny Jones show, 48 Hours, The News with Brian Williams, The CBS Early Show, Judge Mathis, Oprah, just to name a few. He's won six Emmys and 17 Emmy nominations. He's won the ASCAP's Most Performed Themes Award three times and many more awards. It's an incredible honor just to know him, and it's so awesome to have him on the podcast. 
So please enjoy my conversation with Peter Fish. I've known you for like 20, probably, I was trying to figure it out, like 21 years but we see each other like every 10 years, I think. Yeah, it's 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 sporadic, man. <laughs> yeah, and I, I remember the last time that we saw you after I was thinking about it, it, it we did like two gigs in Indiana with CTA. Oh, and uh, I think that was 2011. Was that Kokomo? Yes, yes, yeah. I remember we went to this guy's beer factory. Yeah. Right. Which, which was actually quite fascinating and in, never struck me that how much beer could actually be drunk by a person. It was just, (laughs) it was amazing. And we were with the California Transit Authority, which is Danny Serafin's band, basically, but also you were in the band and... um, Yeah, that's all my fault, you know. That whole thing is all my fault. In a good way. I mean, I I love CTA, but it's all my fault. (laughs) Well, do tell. Yeah, I I know you'd want to hear this story. This is a good one. (laughs) So I've known Danny since uh, maybe 87. Wow. And um, over the years, we became good friends. We did, well, you were involved with Lyric, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, band, so, band in Colorado. That's where I first met Danny and you. Right. So yeah. Danny had come to the record label that I was more or less A&Ring at that time called National Records and had right. this band Lyric. But I had met Danny prior to that. But over the course of the lyric experience, Danny and I got really, really close. And, you know, just that general time period, I ended up doing a couple of tours with him, like jazz festival tours. It was more or less, you know, loosely Danny Serafin and his all-stars or something like that. And we, oh, cool. We played some Midwest festivals like in Milwaukee and Chicago and a couple other places. And so we were having a good time, like, you know, friends, bandmates, we kept getting closer and closer, but that was Late 90s, like 99, 2000, 98, 97, something like that. Right, right. And then that all kind of stopped happening. The record label closed. It was a bad time to start a record label, let's just put it that way. And it was a record label with aspirations. Uh, Ronald Luxemburg was president of the label, and he had a long and, you know, Ronald Luxemburg signed Michael Jackson as a solo artist to Epic Records. So he signed the the Isley Brothers. He signed Charlie Daniels, you know. So Ron was kind of a legend. Um, And so we, you know, the National Records had a, had a thought that it was going to be a major record label at a time where there were quickly becoming no such thing as a major record label. Right. So Danny and I stayed friends, but we're not deeply in touch. You know, we talk and we call each other every couple of months and shoot the shit, but we weren't doing anything. And, mm. and I remember exactly the year, it was 2003, and I was in Florida at the time for Thanksgiving, visiting family in Florida. And I'm driving down the road, Thanksgiving Day, and mm-hmm. on the radio came some Chicago song. I, obviously, it must have been one of the ones where, I mean, there, Chicago comes into different categories. One which is basically, you know, rock and roll, Danny Seraphit, Chicago, and one of which is John Foster, Peter Cetera, pop ballad, Chicago. So it must have been the first, right. not the second. Right. And I'm listening to Danny play, and I'm going, this mother, I shouldn't say this, this guy, <laughs> this guy is amazing. He's one of the greatest drummers of all time. And, and he's my friend. And I'm very, very proud of that. And I called yeah. him. I called him and I said, hey man, you know, happy Thanksgiving. How's the family? How's the kids doing? Blah, 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 blah. I said, listen, Danny. I said, 
I was driving down the road and I heard you play and it occurred to me that you're probably one of the five greatest drummers in rock and roll history. And I'm not even sure who the other four are, but let's <laughs> just say if I had to think about it, I could think of four more. I said, and it's a damn shame that you're not playing drums. Oh yeah, because at that time, how Danny and I were interacting in the immediate, in the four or five years in between that, Danny had taken a liking to investing and producing in Broadway shows. Right. So, so he had called me a couple of times to become an investor. And when I say an investor, I don't mean, hey, take your spare $2 million. Of course, that would be <laughs> funny. But it's like, you know, <laughs> if you have 10 grand that you want to play with and, you know, get into this thing with me, it might be fun. So it was that kind of investing. And, and so I had done a couple of things like that with him. And I'm thinking to myself, so I get on the phone, I said, you know, what are you doing, man? You're sitting there and you're trying to make some money investing in shows and hoping that one of them will be a big hit. And you're this big, you know, big time Broadway producer. I said, but you're, you're Danny Serafin. You know, you're one of the great, great drummers of all time. And he's like, oh man, you know, that's done. That's over. I don't even practice. I don't even play. I haven't touched a kit in three years. And he's going on like that. And I said, wow. and I said, bullshit, 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 bullshit. I said, tell you what we're going to do. I said, I'm going to call you like once a week. I said, you know, I've been to your yeah. house. I know you have a three car garage. I know you only have two cars. So why don't you go set up the drums in the third bay? And why don't you start shedding a little bit? And when you get your act back together, we're going to form a band. And he said, wow. blah, 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 blah. I'm not going to do that. Blah, blah. I said, okay, talk to you in a week. Bye. And, <laughs> and so... Yeah, like a week go by and I call him. I says, so Danny, did you take the drums? Oh man, shut up. Leave me alone. Blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> literally every week, wow. or, and if not necessarily every week, every 10 days at most, I would call him and go, hey, so how's that practicing going? Oh man, you know. So then it gets to be like oh, that's so cool. months of this stuff. And one day I was living in Manhattan, New York City. And um, mm. I was shopping in the in the grocery store. I thought, Jesus, I haven't called Danny in you know ten days. So I'm going to call him right now. And I called him from this grocery store in Manhattan. I said, So, mm. did you take the drums out yet? And he goes, Well, actually. <laughs> and I thought, I got him. I got him. So that was like in June of the, or July of the following year. Mm. I thought, Oh, this is good. This is really great. So now I'm really on him, and he's like. Now I'm calling him and he's practicing. And then one day I call him like a month later and he goes, you know, DW wants me to still endorse them. And, and um, I'm going to be doing a, a clinic. I'm going to do a, a clinic, clinic for right. DW. I said, oh, right. that's fantastic. You're actually doing stuff. This goes on and this goes on. And this now we're going into the fall. And now it's Thanksgiving a year later, literally to the mm. day. And wow. he calls me and he goes, so do we have a band <laughs> and I said, well, if you say we have a band, then we have a band. I mean, you know, it's not up to me. Mm -hmm. It's up to you. He said, well, good. I think you need to come out to California and we need to form a band. He said, because we're opening for Alice Cooper in 17 days at the Dodge Theater in Phoenix. Whoa. I said, <laughs> okay. So that's, that's why this is all my fault. But as it turned out, many years before, like in 96 or Something like that. I think 96 or 97. You mm -hmm. know, and I've lived in New York my entire life, my entire adult life, until mm -hmm. a month ago where I've now moved to beautiful California, beautiful Los Angeles. And yes. But I had a gig that I had to do in L.A. because most of my clients, whether they were in L.A. or in the New York, they didn't care where I did my sessions. But this particular right. gig was for um, 
Fox, not Fox News, Fox Network. And they mm-hmm. wanted to attend the sessions. So I had to do the gig in California. And so I found a studio and I did this and I did that, you know, that kind of mimicked what I was working on, you know, equipment wise. And I needed mm-hmm. a guitar player because I knew who I would call in New York. You know, I've got my stable of guys who I would call and one or two in particular, but I didn't mm-hmm. know who to call in Los Angeles. So I called a couple of friends of mine in LA. I go, you know, tell me the name of a guitarist you should call. And every one of them, every last one of them said, you're going to call this guy named Mark Bonilla. I go, mm-hmm. oh, I guess Mark Bonilla is the guy. So I called Mark Bonilla and he agreed to do the sessions and I never met him before. And he was, mm. as advertised, he was deeply awesome. And I thought, yeah, he's the guy, he's the guy. Anyway, now let's jump forward again to 2004. And Danny says to me, I met this guitar player. His name is Mark Bonilla. Oh, man. I said, yeah, he's our guy. I know that guy. He's, he's the one I would recommend. He's the only guitar player I actually know in LA who I would recommend. So now we had <laughs> me and we had Danny and we had Mark. And then Mm. Danny put the rest of it together because Mark was good friends and still is good friends with Ed Roth and Mm. uh, Mick Mahan. Right. And um, Mark had another friend, Mike Wallace was his name, who's going to be playing rhythm guitar. And he's Mm -hmm. from like halfway between LA and San Diego. Yeah, yeah, I know Mike Wallace. Yeah, yeah, Mike's a great great. guy. Mike's a great guy. So all of a sudden, I find myself like three or four days later at Mark Bonilla's house which has a beautiful studio inside of it with Danny and Mick and Ed, who I'd never met. And now we're the closest of friends. He's one of my closest friends in the whole world now. Ed Ro- cool. And me and Mick Mahan. And um, we were listening to different singers at that time. We hadn't really settled on anything yet, but all of a sudden we're doing this gig. We've got to figure out what tunes to play and we've got to figure out who the band is and what we sound like. Right. And 17, right. and then about like seven days later, we went to Phoenix and we opened up for Alice Cooper for his Christmas show. And it was just completely unbelievably awesome. And that was the beginning of CTA. So that's, oh, wow. that's the long and the short story of why CTA is my fault. And, uh, <laughs> you know, CTA lives on. I'm no longer touring with CTA because the bands evolved from being a two keyboard band with me playing mm-hmm. the horns on keyboard, which is kind of like a specialty of mine to being a one keyboard band with a horn section. And because, A, Ed is like the most amazing piano player ever to live, and I'm not. Um, (laughs) And reason number one and reason number two, because I'm East Coast and everyone else is West Coast, I kind of gracefully exited from the touring, although I do on occasion tour with them. And we still, we have now made two records and I was on both records and I have tunes on both records and all that. So I think I'm either wow. a I'm either a non-touring member of CTA or an honorary member of CTA at this point. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm not sure which is actually accurate. Or maybe wow, I'm maybe cool. I'm neither of those and and you know. So, <laughs> but on the other hand, I got invited to a band dinner the other night. So I thought, oh, oh okay, there you go. Maybe I'm in the band. <laughs> That's you know, cool. and, and the personnel has moved around a little bit. So now Travis Davis is playing bass and Mick is not. And Larry Braggs right. was the lead singer for a very long time, and now he is not. And it moves around a little bit, but the core guys, which yeah. are Danny and Ed and Mark and then Travis, too, because Travis has been with us a long time or with them a long time, they remain mm. the core guys. And 
Uh, That's cool. Uh, you know, better group of guys you couldn't find. So it's a good thing. And when you did that first show, were you doing Chicago tunes like right off the bat? That we were doing the- some Chicago tunes. We were doing some non-Chicago tunes. I, you know, it's so long ago now, I don't really recall, but I do recall one of the coolest things about the show is they brought us on stage with Alice and his band at the end. And we were doing some sort of Christmas song. It might've been um, Santa Claus is coming to town. And I was, mm-hmm. I was playing B3. And I was like, the B3 was on this riser that was so ridiculously tall. I was up higher than anyone else on the stage. And I'm sitting in the, <laughs> in the back row and Danny's on a riser and Alice Cooper's out front singing. And I thought, this doesn't suck. This is really <laughs> cool. So, you know, but the tunes we were playing, I don't really remember. Don Felder was on that gig too. And, oh, cool. and that was really nice to meet him. So that was fun. That's awesome. So you mentioned you just moved to LA and what brought you here? You've been here two and a half, three weeks. Yeah. I, it's actually almost a month. Um, I oh, got okay, here on cool. September 20th. I moved to New York when I was thinking now I'm doing the math, 18 years okay. old. I had been on the road. Gotcha. The, I had been on the road the prior two years with big bands. And when I was, oh, eight, cool. when I was 18, I moved to New York city and I got there and I was living, as it turns out, in a very nice part of town, but Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know it at the time because I was originally from Providence, Rhode Island, which is a very lovely place. And I got to New York, which is a big, huge damn city Mm -hmm. on the Upper West Side of New York at 95th Street and West End Avenue. And most people have been to New York plenty, so they know it's a decent spot. Right. And um, I thought to myself, well, you know, this place sucks. It's kind of ghetto. There's guys in the corner, bums and stuff. And... But I'll find the nice part of town someday. And, and, and the fact is, man, I never found the nice part of town. I, it, what, I'm, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is I love the people I worked with. Mm. I love the music that's been created. I've created family life there. I've done all these things that make one happy in the world there. But the actual right. physical plant and the whole environment of, you know, like living in small spaces and riding on public transportation and, you know, people find that to be energizing. I just find it to be constricting. So it never agreed with me. Meanwhile, whenever I come to LA, it's like, why the fuck do I not live here? And, (laughs) but as, as things turn out, you know, your life, your life takes turns and you're like, I'm going to come out here. Then all of a sudden you got like 26 things going on in New York for a long period of time. I had owned a music production company that had like 25 employees and it's like, well, you don't think about leaving that. You're trying to, you know, you've got 25 people and their families, right. depending on you for livelihood. You just don't wake up one day and go, hey, I'm going to move to LA now. You know, fuck y'all. Mm-hmm. And right. so you, you don't do that. And then, you know, when you get married and you have a life and then you get divorced. And I remember when I got divorced the first time, I thought, <laughs> you know what? Maybe I'll move to Denver because Danny's in Denver. My friend Eric's in Denver. I can meet a right. lot of people in Denver. You know, I know a lot of friends. I know Danny's kids in Denver and I know their friends. Maybe I'll move to Denver, but that didn't mm-hmm. happen. Then all of a sudden I met wife number two, which is the biggest mistake ever. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so then that kind of went away. And then I got divorced very quickly from wife number two. Mm. And then we met the permanent, everlasting, never-to-be-replicated number three. And she and I, she had 
two children from a prior marriage who became my stepchildren and the loves of my life. And we, she's actually very amenable to moving to California as soon oh, as the go. kids graduated from college. So in, oh, wow. in May, both of them graduated from their respective universities. And uh, we timed it out right. And we said, okay, we're gone. And so we moved in the 20th September and here we are. And uh, I will say this about that. Because of COVID, I mean, you know, no one's hanging, no one's doing anything, no one's gigging. So my right. life hasn't really changed in the sense that, you know, primarily what I am, as you know, Eric, I'm more of a composer mm-hmm. and, a, and a producer than I am a, a working, traveling musician. I mean, I've certainly done the gigging thing and I'll always want to do the gigging thing, but when I don't do it, it doesn't really change my livelihood all that much. So my livelihood is writing music for film and TV. And Mm -hmm. so that hasn't changed at all, except for now I'm doing it in the coolest, grooviest place possible, surrounded by beautiful weather and palm trees and mountain breezes and go to the beach when you don't want to work that day and, you know, drive your convertible 300 something (laughs) days a year. And, you know, like... I have to go to New York for a couple of things on November 8th. And I was looking at pictures of my friends wearing winter coats. And I thought, ah, fuck, I got to go put a coat on. I haven't worn anything but shorts and a t-shirt since I've got here. (laughs) Yeah. It's, 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 I have a friend, a a very, very close friend, a a great bass player in New York. This bass player is someone who will change your life as a bass player. His name is Billy Grant. So Billy texts me today and he goes, so how's it going out there? Is everything all right? Are you sailed in? And I wrote, Billy, it's both awesome and beyond my wildest dreams. And that's wow. how I feel about it. So that's the long answer to that short question. Well, I, that's, it's a great answer. I love hearing that stuff because I think LA and California, especially right now, kind of getting getting beat up a little bit. And people love to to rag on this place, but I've had nothing but awesome experiences here and you and like you say you can't beat the weather it's unbelievable yeah Just the, i mean the, but the, it's the cool. you know it's like over the years i've developed as many friends and relationships in la as i ever had in new york and you know and right. musician for musician or client for client if it's if it's not a musician if it's someone i'm doing a you know a film for or something mm-hmm. There's no real difference between a talented and good and straightforward person in New York and the very same thing in L.A. I mean, the the only real difference to me is the physical environment. And this beats the crap out of New York every day of the year. So, um, (laughs) You know, it's funny because I thought the exact same thing when the first time I came here. I was just like, why have I not moved here years ago, you know? So it's good that you finally were able to get here, you know? I heard someone say just a couple of days ago, and it resonated with me, how you know things are meant to be is because that's what they are. They're meant to be because it happened. So why did it not happen sooner? Because I would have had an alternative experience, which doesn't necessarily be the experience that I was supposed to have. This is the experience I was supposed to have. I mean, I'm older than dirt now, but I (laughs) I expect to be alive as long as dirt is. So it doesn't really matter. And um, now I'm right. I'm even more appreciative than I might have been earlier. So who knows? Well, you mentioned you weren't originally from New York. What brought you to New York? Well, if you're a musician and you're a touring musician or you have aspiration to do things that are not local, if you will. I mean, I've got, mm. I've got, I know so many great musicians in my hometown of Providence and 
It's very near, very near Boston, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. another hotbed and Berkeley's up there. And, uh, you know, I, I still lecture at Berkeley and I'm, I love going to Boston and all that. But if you don't want to be that guy in that small environment, you basically have two places to go. One's New York and one's L.A. And right. at age 17, it didn't occur to me that I might not love New York. Right. So, you know, <laughs> I, I was on the road and I was getting ready to get off the road. And I thought, well, you know, I'll go back to Providence. I was living at my brother's house at the time. I'll go back to Providence just to get my bearings, but I'm not going to stay here. I'm going to go somewhere. So it was either L.A. or New York, and I picked New York because I guess I could drive there. Because Providence right, Providence right. to New York is a three-hour drive, and Providence to L.A. is a five-day drive or six-day drive. So <laughs> it's kind of easier, you know? Right. But Absolutely. It, again, geography plays a large part, you know? So you were on the road at 17. That's pretty... No, actually, I was on the road at, at 16. Wow. Just uh, two months after my 16th birthday. Jeez. Yeah. So you got started early. Did you eventually, did you go to music school? I did not. I'm, I'm a high school dropout. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because listening to your compositions, you'd never believe it. They're just so deep harmonically. You well, you're a, I mean? you're, a, you're a kind person. Thank you. Uh, oh, man. I don't think anybody would argue with that. They're pretty, pretty... Um, pretty in-depth stuff, you know? It's, well, I mean, a, I'm, I'm, I'm self-taught, but I'm self-taught in a, how can I say this? When I was a teenager prior to going out on the road, I studied with probably the two greatest influences that I could have who were based out of Berkeley. And mm. so I was studying with Berkeley professor types, just not gotcha. at Berkeley. Right. The, you know, so I, I'm not self-taught in the sense that I'm not like, you know, and I don't mean to compare, but I'm not like Paul McCartney or someone who doesn't read music. I read right. music. I teach harmony. I understand harmony. I understand theory. I'm fluent in every possible scale known to man, all that sort of stuff. Chord mm. theory, melodic structure, contrapuntal harmony, pointillistic harmony, whatever you want. I right. have a background in it. It's just I don't have a university background in it. So did you always want to be a composer? Yeah. Well, or yes and no. Here's here's what happened to me. I was, I was, right before I went on the road, I started to play gigs in Providence, and you know, in, in those days, and even to this day, you know, everything is kind of based on knowledge of tunes, right? Mm-hmm. If you're doing right. a club date, or even if you're doing a jazz club date, you know, and someone says, "Let's play Stella by Starlight." Okay, well, everybody knows Stella by Starlight, but who doesn't know Stella by Starlight? I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, who did, who didn't know the the changes to Blue Bassa? I'm just making this up. I didn't. Right. And you know, right. if you put a fake book in front of me and I see a D minor seven flat five, yeah, I'll play it. That's fine. That's not an issue. But all these guys who played these gigs, and most of them, of course, were a lot older than me. They had right. this innate fake book of the mind, and mm. I couldn't develop that. My mind wasn't, and still isn't, attuned to that. And so I thought to myself. Well, how am I going to teach myself to learn that skill, the skill of remembering chords, remembering changes without a chart in front of you? Right. And I thought, oh, maybe the way I could do that is if I write some of my own songs, and then I would remember those chords, and it would help trigger that whatever that piece of the brain is where you learn that sort of thing. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I was looking for, I was looking to composition as a way in to understanding how musicians play tunes that are, you know, that they've got 6,000 tunes in their head and they just pull them out of their ass whenever it's necessary. Right. And, and 
it's just not a skill I had. Now, the funny thing is, it's still not a skill that I have. I never developed it. And even with my own tunes, I went to play a tune the other night for my wife. It's a tune I wrote for her about eight or nine years ago. And I didn't remember the changes. <laughs> the tune's been recorded. It's been in movies. Um, it's one of the nicer tunes I've ever written. It really does. And I sat down to play it because I just got a brand new old piano and got it put in the mm. studio. And she came and she said, let me hear the piano. I thought, okay, I'll play her this song. And I started to play it. And about the second chord, I thought, what is that chord? So I still can't do it. I can't even do it with my <laughs> own music. But that was the impetus to starting to write stuff was trying to use it as a memory device to learn tunes. Wow. It didn't work out that way, but it worked out as a career. So that's a good thing. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And so like, you know, put, put a tune in front of me, give me a chart. I'll play it all day, all night, but without a chart, mm -hmm. I, I probably have a book in my head of tunes that I absolutely know without music, maybe 20 tunes. Wow. You can't make a living on 20 tunes on that circuit. You just can't do it. So I right. don't, I don't and never do those gigs. Someone call, calls me and says, I want you to, you know, MD a given singer. You know, I've MD'd um, a lot of different people. I've MD'd uh, Phoebe Snow. I've MD'd Carly Simon. I've MD'd a lot of people. But then I mm -hmm. learned the book. I have the book. I know what they do. I can learn the book. And I still right. have the charts on the, on the stand and I'm good. Mm -hmm. But if I just go to a gig and someone goes, all right, play uh, Frankenstein, you know, by right. Edgar Winterbend. Sorry, you know. Right. Wow. Cut a chart, then I'll play it, you know. <laughs> wow, that's really interesting, actually, because I've, I've sort of struggled with that as well, like, on my whole life. And I started out as a kid, like, writing songs just because I have, I don't know, I think with you, you obviously have music that's just coming out of you all the time, I would, I would guess, you know. And I was just looking for a way to get that out. And yeah. then I was like, oh, I, I was learning other songs just to learn how they work, but not to, to memorize them necessarily, because the whole goal was just to get out of my head what was in my head. So even to this day, like I, you know, I do, I do wedding bands and whatnot, but I, I've, if there, if time has elapsed, like elapsed, I just played a couple of weeks ago my first gig in like six and a half months, but it was also my wedding. Yeah, but it was also my first like private you know, cover gig in probably two years. And I had to go and learn Brown Eyed Girl over again. You know, like I have yeah. to go back at that point and like, give so, me the set list. So you, I'm you have suffer to the same affliction, man. Yeah, I think so. Wow. But, uh, uh, and, and I've just, and I've done it my whole life, done cover bands and stuff, you know? So there's, I don't know, there's probably a core of like 200 tunes that are sort of in there. That I that would come back to me pretty quick. Well, dude, but that's it, that's know. ten times more than mine. So. <laughs> but that's only because I've done it. You know what I mean? I hear you. Uh, not because that comes naturally. I went and saw my friend Walterino the other night. Yeah, and he has acoustic guitar. You know, he plays his acoustic guitar with a looper and stuff. And and that dude knows probably thousands of songs. And and you could just ask him anything, and he. Right. Like, I've never been never been that. Guy how do sure. these How do these guys do it? I don't know. It's just really. I, that's, I don't know. I'm just as perplexed. <laughs> so I guess you, you were just meant to be a writer. That's all there is to it. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's, it's <laughs> composition has been very, very good to me. So I've got, I've got no problem with it at all. And when I end up do playing gigs, it's usually gigs where it's a band or an artist or someone that has a given set repertoire of, you know, 
20, 25 tunes and they're going to play 12 of them a night and 10 of them are always going to be the same ones. And then I can right. learn that and that's fine. You know, and, right. th and then six months after the gig is done, I forgot them all. <laughs> exactly. But exactly. At, le at least, at least I have the lead sheets and I can go back and re-remember them. Like I've been subbing on the Buddy Rich band recently and mm -hmm. when, and that's a very difficult book, but yeah, when, when they call me, I sit down with the book and I relearn it all over again because now I know it. But right. without that couple of minutes to do that, I'm useless, you know, but those yeah. kind of gigs I can do. So how did you, how did you get into the composing business? Like what was your first project? You're going to laugh. That's one of the greatest questions ever asked. <laughs> well, the first one I ever, I, I wish this was true. So I'm going to tell you what the second one was. I wish it was the first one. The first one was, <laughs> the first one was actually pretty legit. Warner Brothers mm -hmm. had a kid's show that was traveling like to arenas, like small arenas, like the Felt Forum at Madison Square Garden or, you know, like 3,000, 2,000 square, 2,000, I was going to say square foot, 2,000 capacity <laughs> arenas right. um, called the Bugs Bunny Follies. And it was oh. actors wearing costumes of Bugs Bunny and whoever the other characters were. And they were doing all these skits on stage to Bugs Bunny-esque orchestral music. And so mm -hmm. they asked me to write and then pre-record all these orchestral tunes and, and, you know, scenarios for the Bugs Bunny Follies. So that was wow. my actual first gig. But So that was like a kind of semi-legit gig. My mm -hmm. second gig was the one I wish was my first because then I could tell the story without lying. I could tell you my first gig was. <laughs> my first, but it's really my second gig, was I did the mm -hmm. music for a corporate film called, and this is the God's honest truth, I kid you not, Engine Sludge, Myth or Reality. <laughs> awesome. You, you got to start somewhere, man. And a gig is, <laughs> and a gig is a gig is a gig. Right, absolutely. If they call right. me right now to do that film, I'd do it. <laughs> Why not? And were you at that time? You obviously probably have a home set up now. Yeah, and like like everyone's recording in their house now. At that time, were you writing out charts and hiring yeah. musicians and like? Oh, definitely. I mean, speaking yeah. the home environment, you know, everyone having their own studio, of which I'm sitting in one now. Right. Um, I don't mean to sound like Al Gore with the internet, but I might mm. have invented that. I'm not <laughs> sure. If I didn't invent it, I came pretty damn close. I was certainly on the very, very first wave. But to answer the question, and I'm happy to tell you about that, but to answer the question you actually yeah. did ask, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, they would give you a gig, whether it was the Bugs Bunny Follies, where they would describe the scenes and how long they would run and what the characters are going to be doing. And then mm -hmm. you would write out charts and you would hire a recording studio and you would hire the guys and you would go in there and record the shit, you know, and then you would mix it in the studio and all that. Or whether it was Engine Sludge mm -hmm. Myth or Reality, where you would go to the video editor's suite and you would ah. take counts in the film. You would put the film in a flatbed and you would note you know, how many frames and there was all these conversions, you know, like if you're on frame 6,482, that's actually three minutes and something into the film. And you would do wow. all that and you would take all your notes and then you would write to your handwritten notes. And then you would go into the studio and hope that you would count it right. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there was a lot of math involved and a lot of paper involved. Uh, and then, of course, over time, it turned into something else. I'm a diaper, I start.
I have to confess something. I, I love books, but I, I don't love reading. And it's, it's been something that I've, I've wrestled with since I was a kid. You know, I, I can read. I have read books, but they're very time consuming. And I've spent most of my time trying to build a music career, <laughs> which takes a lot of time. But one thing I definitely do a lot of is drive in L.A. traffic on my way to a gig. And there's a solution that combines those two situations, and that's called Audible.com. Audible has thousands of audiobook titles, and you can listen offline anywhere, anytime. The app is free and can be installed on all smartphones and tablets. And they have just a ton of music-related titles, like All You Need to Know About the Music Business by Donald S. Passman, How Music Works by David Byrne, or Music Production Secrets by Calvin Carter. And you can get a free 30-day trial right now if you visit audibletrial.com slash divebarrockstar. That's audibletrial.com slash divebarrockstar. I'd like to take a second to thank you for listening to the Dive Bar Rockstar podcast. As a new podcast, getting the word out is a vital part of what it takes to keep the show on the road. Uh, or off the road, as the current case may be. If you would like to support the podcast... All you got to do is subscribe wherever you listen. And if you have an extra minute or two, please leave a review. You can also share and follow the podcast on your social media apps. Okay, enough begging. I hope you're having fun. And once again, thank you for listening. Well, do tell me about the, the home recording show. Because I, I don't know, I had a feeling maybe it's because we've talked about it before, but I just had a feeling that you were kind of ahead of the curve on the, on the home yeah, well, studio thing. What, what had happened with that one? I had a friend um, in New York, he was a lyricist and we had written mm. some things together for Sesame street. And we actually won uh, three Emmys together for Sesame street. Wow. And um, one day he called me, I think about a week before Thanksgiving and it was 1980. Mm. I'm going to, Make sure I get this right. Maybe 81 or 82. Ooh, okay. And he called me and he said, look, I've got this amazing gig. He goes, it's stupid, but it's amazing. He says, I've been contacted by these people who want me to write children's songs. And it's a tax write-off. It's a tax dodge. They need to produce mm -hmm. these songs so they can get this write-off. And I don't remember at this point in time what the whole tax scam was. It was a legitimate scam. It wasn't like they were, you know, right. cheating the government. They were as... They were just taking advantage of whatever the tax code was at the time. Right. He said, so what they're going to do is they're going to give us a curriculum and we're going to write songs to that curriculum. And whatever we can produce, they're going to pay us $500 a song for however many songs we produce through the rest of the year. And I said to him, well, we can't produce songs for $500. I mean, it's impossible. <laughs> and he said, no, listen, this is what we're going to do. He said, there's this new thing that's come out. TX makes it. It's a four-track recorder. I thought, wow. okay. He says, so, and he had an office. And he says, so there's this room in my office. Remember the spare room? I go, yeah. He goes, okay. So I'll be in my room. I'll write lyrics. You get into this room. We'll get one of these TX deals. And then we could get one of those drum machines. Now, but by that, he didn't mean like a Lindrum. That didn't exist yet. It was like those kind of wow. things that you would hit the button that said Bossa Nova. And then we'd go, tick, <sighs> tick, 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 tick. Tick, tick. And then you could, then there was a knob that you could slow it down or speed it up. And then they had the, like the rock and roll button, like, doom, doom, da, tick, tick, doom, da. you know, and there were like four <laughs> buttons on the thing and that was it. And so right. he said, so we'll get a drum machine and we'll get a synthesizer. And there was like, I forgot whether, whatever the synth was at that time, it was 
prior to a DX7. It might have been a Prophet 5. I don't know. He said, mm. and, and so like on one track, you can put the drums and on one track, you could put a bass part and one track, you could put like a keyboard part. And on the fourth track, we'll call a singer in and the singer will sing the song. And we'll make sure that when we call a singer in, that we'll give him like three or four songs to sing. Right. And I thought, okay, that makes sense. So wow. we got the four track and we got the drum machine and we got whatever the synth was and we called singers. So every morning he would write like four or five songs and it could be about anything that the curriculum. So I get like five songs about like lizards and I would have to write four songs about lizards and record all these various parts. And then at the end of the day, I would call a singer in to sing four songs about lizards. So by the end of the day, we had finished four songs and I was paying the singer like a hundred dollars a song. So the singer made $400, leaving $1,600 left for us to split. So we each made $800 a day from like Thanksgiving day through Christmas, which, wow. which in 1982 was a lot of money. And so that's like right. $800 times like say 40 days. So we, so we each made like $32,000 in the month of December, Jeez. writing and producing these songs that would never see the light of day. And <laughs> I think that was the first home studio. I mean, it was in wow. an office, but it was the same concept. Right. Because yeah, up until absolutely. then, it was like, dude, you got to go rent the room. The room costs $2,000 a day. There's your entire budget. Right. And he said, yeah. no, there's another way to do this. So I gave him credit for that more than me because he kind of figured it out. And now you have probably a pretty elaborate setup. Yeah. It's, it's actually, it's very old school in, in many ways and very modern in other ways. Because I was one of the first Synclavier guys. Oh, yeah. Cool. And I'm still one of the last Synclavier guys. <laughs> so right now I'm staring at my Synclavier. Or actually, oh, cool. it's behind my back. But if I turn my head, mm. I'd be staring at my Synclavier. So right. I still program and sequence everything on a Synclavier. And then I run it through, you know, completely up-to-date mm. Pro Tools system to right. use for, for the DAW and the mixing. And I have both virtual and outboard synths. And I have my... Uh, grand piano and so on and so forth. And um, yeah, oh, it's, I mean, cool. it's, it's, it's quite elaborate, but it's not exactly, you know, it's unique. It's, it, it's in and of itself to itself because I keep waiting for something that the Synclavier can't do and I haven't mm -hmm. seen it yet. So I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm, I know when to hold them and when to fold them. So right now I'm holding them. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, yeah. I mean, the Synclavier was so far ahead of its time that it's still it's still ahead of its time. So right. It's just that there weren't, the, at its peak, there were 300 owner operators. And now there's probably, I don't know, I'm going to guess, I know one or two others. I'm going to guess there are maybe 10 of us wow. in the world. So we'll see what happens. I mean, and I can, I can, I can program and I can... I can model, I can do everything I want to do inside of Pro Tools. I know, I know that world. I know Pro Tools mm. as a se sequencing environment very, very well. I just don't like it as much as the Synclavier, so I stick with the Synclavier. And so how often do you think you use outside musicians now? Well, I mean, that depends on the project. Depends on the budget. Right. Depends on a lot of things. Um, yeah. There's certain things I'll never call, you know, musicians for again. Strings are kind of like, you know, you don't need it. French horn, you don't need it. Right. Um, saxophones are still a little dicey to me. Uh, guitar, yeah. guitar, depending on the environment. I mean, I can, I could play you some Spanish guitar stuff that I've done that would just make you sad that it wasn't a guitar player. Wow. But <laughs> other types of guitar, not so much. I mean, guitar is touch and go. 
bass. I'm sorry, Eric. It's not all that often. It's just oh, not all that often. Um, <laughs> but, you know, on the other hand, I live for bass live. I mean, you know, live bass right. playing is, is something I could never do without. But in terms of recording, I, I'm a pretty good bass player for someone who's not a bass player and doesn't play bass at all. I, I, right. I fake it extraordinarily well. So, And drums kind of <laughs> like the same thing. I mean, you can't get yeah. that live environment that live drums, you know, big live, all sorts of room overtones swirling around. You can't get right. that, but you could program mm -hmm. your ass off pretty well. So it depends on what the, what the goal is, what the need is, you know? Right. So it's Absolutely. really one of those, it depends things. I mean, if I had my way, yeah, every budget would be $75,000. Every session would be only live musicians. But on the other hand, I don't have my way. Well, I'm just as guilty as everyone else. I mean, I think that's kind of really the point of this discussion anyways, is that no matter what you play, you kind of need to play something chordal, you know, even as a bass player. So I do a lot of licensing stuff as well, where I'm just sitting in my studio. The last ba batch of tunes I did was a bunch of heavy metal stuff, all programmed, you know, I play guitar, I play the bass. And before that I did a bunch of yacht rock tunes, you right. know, and I'm playing the keyboards and playing everything. And it's, you know, so it's just kind of, how it works now you yeah know, i can't can't be mad about it you know? no you can't Especially, and then you know blessedly every so often i get the gig where they go yeah and we'd like a symphony orchestra and you go oh okay and then yeah. then you decide on the budget are you recording the new york philharmonic or in this case now i guess the la phil or am i going right. to bratislava for the bratislava symphony orchestra which costs you know a dollar thirty and and right. they're still great, you know? So, but every mm -hmm. so often you get those calls that everything needs to be or should be live. And it's a very happy event. Well, just a nerdy question. What sample and bit rate do you usually use? Uh, 2448. Yeah. Yeah. In general, cool. I mean, the Sinclair can go up to a hundred, but, oh, wow. uh, but you know, in a practical world, 2448 is a nice yeah. solid place to be where yeah. um, everything sounds good. Sound look, Maybe people have better hearing than I do, but it sounds pretty much the same going in as it does coming out. So right. that's all I really care about, you know. I, I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't hear any loss of fidelity. Yeah, me neither. But I still, you know, maybe thirty percent of the time, someone wants that, and I just wonder. I don't know how how big are your hard drives? Like what you know? Well, should I, mean, I it's, should I know, amp everything up because I need to change or just. Uh, that still seems like a standard. Yeah, it's a standard. And, you know, the hard drive size doesn't really matter. Just get another one, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, right. Everything's external drive. Actually, I'm running four FireWire drives at once right now. I also have a portable system where I record. I'll, I'll produce records in the field or record people in the field. And then I'm just running your basic, you know, two terabyte drive. Plug it into USB port and away you go, you know. And are you Mac or PC? Oh, I'm Mac. Yeah. And, you know, and I don't really care. I'm not, I'm not a Mac snob or anything. I actually, right. I, I don't have an iPhone. I have an Android phone. I, I don't watch Apple TV. I'm not an Apple guy, but it's mm -hmm. just, you know, if you're, if you've been in this business long enough, everything gravitates towards Mac, not to say you couldn't do it on PC, but it just seems to be the place to be. And I've been there for a long time, but I don't care one right. way or the other, as long as it works, you know? So when you like get the call to do a film, yeah. Could you like kind of break down just sort of how the whole process works? Yeah. First like, the guy calls you and he wants to hear his exact film in your repertoire already. 
He goes, play me stuff like what I want. And then ah. you have to say to the guy or lady, if you had what you wanted, you wouldn't need me to write it. <laughs> and they go, oh, yeah, but like kind of like what I want. And so then you try to send them cues or movies that might have some sort of simpatico to what they're looking for so they can feel confident hiring you. Then, you know, mm -hmm. if you're lucky enough to get hired, then you get hired. And then the process begins. Now, what I like to do is I like to spot the film with the client that is go over it end to end and let him describe to me where he or she wants music and oh, what type of music he or she wants. One of the things, though, I've recently done, which was really successful, I realized that I actually did have a lot of stuff like what this client wanted. So I said, hey, you mm -hmm. know what? Let me do my own temp score of this film. Oh. Now, what a temp score is, for those who don't know it, a lot of times you get a, a, a feature film, especially a, a major studio film, and they will have mm -hmm. temp scored it by using music that they know they're not going to put in the final film because they can't afford to buy it. Right. So they temp score a film and then it's kind of easy for you because you go, oh, they like the sound of that. I'll make something like that. And it gives you a good roadmap. So what I mm -hmm. recently did with this client is I temp scored my own temp score for my own film. And I said to the guy, I said, and some of the stuff is actually available. So if you like it, we could just use it in the film. And lo and behold, a good 20 or 30% of it is going to be in the film and it's stuff oh, that's, that's already done. So that, that cuts down the labor quite a nice yeah. little bit. But then once that's done, then you just go back and, you know, you start at the beginning and you go to the end and you try to develop some sort of cogent musical narrative from end to end. So it looks like you actually paid attention. Mm -hmm. And then you send it into the director and the director never likes everything, but hopefully if they like 70% of it, you're doing good. And then you kind of refine it and then it's done and then you get paid. And, and you're, getting, you're, you're the last thing to go on. Is well, before right? uh, yeah, be before the mix and before the color correct, but close enough to the end. And are you usually working with the final cut or is that also something you have to deal with? Well, changes in that. Yeah, no, you have to deal with changes. I'm working in a film right now where I thought I had the final cut and today mm -hmm. they sent me the final cut. <laughs> <laughs> but I've been working <laughs> I've been working on it since October 5th, but it was pretty mm -hmm. close. It was a pretty good fine cut. There's very, you know, couple of things different, things get moved around by a couple of, you know, a couple of seconds. It's, it's really not a great tragedy. But gotcha. working with a final cut is certainly the best way. Unfortunately, you never know that it's a final cut until the movie comes out. Then it's a final ah. cut. Or like, my wife is a filmmaker. She's a documentary filmmaker. We have this film coming out. She has this film coming out uh, in about a week. And the film is done. But believe me, both of us wish it wasn't done. Because... Our, my stepdaughter, our daughter, watched the film for the first time two weeks ago. And she sends mm -hmm. me a, a, a frame of it in a text. Mm -hmm. And the word cinematographer is misspelled. Uh, there's like a, it's like a cinematographer. So there's a U where an uh, I should be. And uh, I'm no. looking at the keyboard now. Yeah, someone typed a U where they meant to type an I because they're right next to each other on the keyboard. Mm -hmm. And no one saw it. So uh, this film is going to come out. And what, fortunately, it wasn't the main cinematographer. It was a, it was a uh, credit for additional cinematography. But instead, okay. it's additional cinematography. <laughs> so, I mean, even then, the film isn't really done. We could have pulled the film, made the distributor wait, fixed mm. it. I mean, it's never done. But right. fortunately, you get close enough to done that you just have to let it go. And hopefully, any given director will get to that point and go, you know, I know I wanted to trim 10 frames from that shot, but I'm just not going to because it's going to make your life miserable.
And usually people understand that. And do you approach a documentary any different than a feature film? I don't. You know, yeah. I, I'm always of the belief that picture writes music. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I interpret picture, but mm-hmm. um, I'm very much a literalist. You know, I know guys who do the reverse and it works perfectly for them, but it wouldn't work for me. I'm not the kind of guy who goes, oh, look, here's a murder. Hey, why don't I put a polka with a clown singing? That's not me. (laughs) But there are guys who do that and it makes perfect sense. Right. Because they're looking to play against the grain. Mm -hmm. I'm looking to like polish the grain. And that doesn't make me better or worse. Probably makes me worse because I might be performing the obvious, but. I like to do the obvious very well. Um, right. You know, so that's kind of right. like my thing. So I believe that picture writes music, whether it's a doc, you're always telling a story. I mean, people want to know what the story is. And the, the job of music is to tell the, the viewer what they're supposed to feel, how they're supposed to feel, you know. Right. Like we were, right. we were watching TV last night. And I heard this music and this guy was hovering over his mother's bed. And this guy's pretty evil character. In the show we were watching, mm-hmm. I said, he's going to kill his mother. And she says mm-hmm. to me, how do you know that? I go, because that's kill your mother music I'm hearing. <laughs> and indeed, one scene later, he killed his mother. So to me, that's the job of music, to alert the audience how you're supposed to feel. It's okay to feel that way. And to give them the, the audio cues as to what the emotion is. Well, let's talk about the Peter Fish group for a second. Yeah, let's talk about the Peter Fish group. Because uh, I've been listening to you all day. It oh, so you know, you know who phenomenal. Billy Grant is? You know who I, Billy I, Grant is? Yes, I have definitely been listening to him uh, quite a bit today. Phenomenal bass player. He's ridiculous. But the whole band is, is pretty phenomenal. Yeah, I love that um, band. And, and of course, they're all in New York. So if and yeah. when we all get to play music out here again, I'm, I fear I'm going to have to replicate as opposed to bring them because... Finances don't allow that, you know? Right. right. And for, for East Coast gigs, sure. But for West Coast gigs, not so much. Right. So let's talk about them. What do you want to know? Well, how long ha- have they been together or had they been together? Yeah, I guess that was going to be Well, I mean, question. that's been a working unit pretty much as you hear it since 2004. Wow. Yeah. I mean, every yeah. so often someone can't make a gig and we have a backup. And it's very it's contemporary jazz. Yeah, I had something um, in mind when I started it, and I don't know if it comes through anymore or not, but I certainly had a plan in mind. Yeah. And I bet you want to know what that plan is. That would be fascinating. Okay. I was really <laughs> influenced um, in the early 70s. Don't forget, I'm older than dirt, right? Um, <laughs> I won't ask that question. But uh, by, by Miles Davis's gradual turning into an electronic musician. So like from In a Silent Way, his record in 1969, going forward to Bitches Brew in 1972, Live mm-hmm. Evil in 1973, Jack Johnson in 1975, On the Corner in 1977. Those records are very, very, very important to me. And mm-hmm. what Miles did was he basically invented fusion. Now, the, right. problem, the problem with what Miles did for the rest of the world is the rest of the world promptly took what this genius, and Miles to me is the greatest musical genius ever to live, what this genius did, they promptly dumbed it down. And sooner or later, it became, became the cool wave. I don't want to insult anyone, but pick your light, uh, smooth jazz musician. Smooth jazz. You know, right, it, became, right. it became Boney James somehow. 
And Bodie right, James right. is a fine player. Don't get me wrong. And one of right. my closest friends in the world is Chris Bodie, and he's a great player. Don't get me wrong. But right. it became that from what mm-hmm. Miles started as incredibly challenging music. I mean, Miles was to jazz at that time what Jimi Hendrix was to rock and roll. Only rock and right. roll continued to thrive in that fashion. And Miles became smooth jazz somehow. So what I wanted to do was pretend that all that stuff in between didn't exist. Mm. To take 1972 and to jump it into present times and pretend the rest of that crap didn't happen and to see what I would indicate that it might sound like. So that was my concept for the band. Very cool. Well, it definitely comes across... all the songs yeah. or do you collaborate with the band or no yeah. i mean we, we have one tune that we haven't recorded in our book that the saxophonist ben drazen wrote and it's a really good mm-hmm. tune but we haven't recorded it yet and uh honestly you know the sad sad secret and it's not much of a secret is that i'm not really that good a piano player i'm an okay <laughs> i'm an okay piano player i'm okay um but i do think i'm a good writer so i want to showcase my skill and my skill isn't necessarily playing piano. My skill mm-hmm. is the writing. So um, primarily and probably when we record again, we now have about a book of about 28 tunes and they could all, they all stay in the test of time, I think, or at least most of them do. And so, you know, we'll get around to recording more of those before we record anything by others. So I also love the fact that you number all the songs rather yeah. than name So w- we're up to number 28 now. And people wow. go, you know, why do you do that? And, you know, mm. there's there's a double answer to that. You know, if I call a song uh, Springtime in the Andes Mountains, well, mm. there you are, right? Springtime in the Andes Mountains. And you put yourself in that place, but maybe that's not what the song means to you. But if I call the song number 12, well, you get to put yourself in your own place. Right. So, and the other, and the other answer, which is less cerebral and more flippant, is like it was good enough for Beethoven. He had Symphony Number no. Five, right? You know, so if it's good mm. enough for him, it's good enough for me. Yeah, I, I don't see if you have a song that's got lyrics. You know what I mean? If you've right. got a song right. that's called "I Love You So Fucking Much I Could Shit," 
And, and as, <laughs> as long as that lyric is in the song, I understand why you're going to call a song, I love you so fucking much, I could shit. But, right. you know, if you're doing an instrumental song, you might as well call it number 29, because what right. does it really mean? The listener should put themselves in whatever place they want to be in when they're listening to your song. Oh, that's brilliant. But I did notice, uh, so Then and Now, is that the latest record? No, Then and Now is a combination of that record numbers, which is the one you're referring to, and mm -hmm. my first record in 1975, <sighs> where those songs, I hadn't developed this, this concept yet, and I was naming things like everyone else was. So that record from 1975 became like a, a dual release called Then and Now. Uh, and gotcha. that record from 1975 was actually re-released about seven or eight years ago by a European record label. And it was, it was so funny, man, because all of a sudden it started getting reviews all over the world. And it was like this lost classic from the 70s. And I thought, gee, I didn't know this record was that popular. <laughs> you know? <laughs> It's very cool because I don't know that uh, we have a lot of that kind of music out here anymore. Or you have to search all the clubs that used to. Well, all the clubs are closed now, but sure, uh, all the jazz stuff is is um, kind of one by one gone away. You know, so so I wonder. Well, this too shall pass. You mean the COVID? Yeah, I mean not yeah, only the COVID, sure. but you know what? You live long enough, and you realize. Whether it's, I mean, COVID is an extreme. Obviously, this has not happened in any of our lifetimes unless we're 103 years old. Um, right. But three or four years from now, and I'm hoping sooner, I'm hoping, I'm hoping next year we actually return to gigging a little bit. And two or three years down from now, some sort of natural order reasserts itself. Right. There'll be clubs, there'll be venues, we'll be all right. I think that's true, but, I, it, but the jazz thing has sort of steadily gone away. And, you know, and, and kind of like you brought up too, now that, the, now that jazz is Phil Collins, then, you know, it's gotten so weird about what jazz even is anymore. And, and how do you get new fans to that kind of genre when it's so confused as to what it even is, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't know the secret to that. I do know though, that when we would play, whether it was festivals or clubs or whatever we would play, and we never really got out here. We never really played Southern California. Um, mm -hmm. But wherever we, we would play, the word would get out and, and the people would come. I mean, for, for many years, we played a reasonably steady thing in New York um, at this mm -hmm. place called the 55 Bar. And they oh, were yeah. lined up around the block, man. It's like, yeah. really? They were lined up around the block for little old me? And it was like, <laughs> there was no advertising. It just was word of mouth or people went to the website or whatever they did. And it'll happen again. I'm not exactly sure how, but I have faith. You, you say you're not that good of a, you're 
not a great keyboard player, but if someone sees you live, there, there's some, I don't know, there's something about you that's what I think is phenomenal is the way that you can build a solo. I saw you play with, didn't you just play with Tom Scott? Yeah. Yeah. I saw you play in Norfolk, Virginia. I was there. We were on the same bill. I was with Nelson Rangel. Oh we, yeah. We played earlier and you played with Tom Scott and just, and Tom Scott's phenomenal. I mean, the whole oh, yeah. band was great, but there was just an energy change when you took over. Yeah, and, no, and my energy is really good. I'm a very percussive. I was one of those people who in elementary school, they taught you that piano was a percussive instrument. And I right. believe it. Yeah. I believe it. Yeah. I don't believe it when I'm writing, but I do believe it when I'm performing. But one of the reasons right. I believe it when I'm performing, frankly, is I'm so technically limited these days. Um, mm. My brain is full of good things to play and my hands uh, only cooperate to a certain degree. So mm. I've kind of learned to accept that degree and, and, and work with it. Well, I'm a fan. Well, thank you, sir. Listening to all your as much catalog as I could get a hold of. So diverse. Like yeah, that's can... kind of like my thing. I mean, I don't do polka mm -hmm. and I can't do opera because I'm not a librettist and I don't speak Italian or German or any of that. But short of polka and opera, I, I, there's not much. Listen, there's 12 notes. We've all played them. And that's, right. that's how I kind of look at it. It's just how we can recombine them. And certain things I have a great deal of, um, understanding of and certain things I have a facile understanding of, like I get the basic idea, but if you say to mm. me, you know, give me an artist, you know, I don't even know, you know, the, the, the rolling snot balls and do something like the rolling snot balls. Well, the first thing I'm going to do is go to YouTube and hear three rolling snot ball records and figure out, Oh, I see what they're all about. And then I'll be able to do it. You know, there was a time when I was sort of pursuing composing and, and, uh, you know, it's, it's super competitive and road gigs always come up and I just take them, you know, that, that have kept me distracted. But a lot of people will say like, find your niche, you know, f do one thing or find your thing. You know, do you think that's sort of true in, in today's world? Or, I mean, how did you manage to be getting all these gigs for such diverse, you know, projects? Well, like I can answer that question one of two ways, because they're wildly divergent answers, and yet they're both true. I've always thought myself as someone who could go in any direction. And yet, for a number of years, say from like 1988 to 2000, I was known mm. as the news guy. Mm. Every piece of music, literally every piece of music on CBS News, I wrote. Right. I wrote. And like... Every day, I was working for CBS News, and I had trained the CBS television network that if they needed music, they called my phone number and they got music. And so I was like the news guy. That didn't mean that's all I could do, right. but it's pretty much what I did for a lot of years, a lot of years, you know. Right. And, you know, it was a very, very, very good living, and, and I did some really, really good music over the years, but it was all in service of that product. On the other hand, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's that's a good steady gig. But on the other hand, there was nothing to prevent me from doing, you know, a piece of reggae for CBS News or a jazz tune for CBS News or an orchestral thing for CBS News, depending on the situation. Now, right. it's true that seven times out of 10, they wanted orchestral. You know, they wanted that big news music sound. 
Mm. And I was able to deliver that big news music sound. But I, I did a lot of interesting things along the way. So I'm answering the question both ways. Yeah, finding a niche is good, but I don't think it should be a musical niche. I think it should be a client niche where you find one or two or five or six or eight people who want you for what you do. And then hopefully you can offer them whatever it is they need at that given moment in time. Because if you can only do, you know, Sky in seven, eight time, well, yeah, you're the Sky in seven, eight time guy, but how often does that get called for? Right, 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 right. Because I'm kind of, you know, I, I think of myself as a pretty diverse guy too, especially yeah. as a player. Yeah, definitely you are. You know, no question. As a player, it's like, that's how you keep working. You got to be able to do as much as you can possibly do, you know, because one of those is a gig, you know, every every style, every genre. Yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. But I feel like you get sort of typecast when it comes to film scoring and, and you know, library music, licensing stuff. But um, you've managed to not. Yeah, I kind of move around a lot. It's, I, I, it's not a plan. I'm just grateful because when, you know, one venue dries up, somehow another one opens up. And, right. um, you know, these days I'm doing a lot of docs, but I'm not just doing docs. I'm doing features and um, helps to have a wife who's a documentary filmmaker because she tends to call me and hire me. Um, <laughs> that's great. So that's good. And, yeah. uh, but uh, I'm doing other people's docs too. And I'm doing comedy and I'm doing drama and I'm doing docs and, and it doesn't matter to me. I'll do anything. You know, that's cool. The proudest thing will be, and I assume it'll remain true is that when that day, hopefully long in the future, when they hit my gravestone and they see the inscription, it'll be never made a living doing anything but music. You know, that's that's my tagline. There's so many people that would just love to just do that. Exactly. If I could just if I could just get a cover gig, you know, and 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 make my living doing that. Yeah. And and and, uh, and the fact is many of the people who can't, they'll whip mm -hmm. my ass musically. They'll just whip my ass. They're so fucking talented. So it's got very little to do with, you know, how much talent, innate talent you have. I don't know what it is, but I do know whatever success one might have has so little to do with your innate skill. I mean, you got to have some skill. You have to have some ability. Right, right. But after that, it's just a big old clusterfuck crapshoot. Who knows? Yeah. Well, it's tricky, too, because we're also in a business that doesn't really have any rules. So Truth. You, you kind of have to figure it out, you know, Truth. half of the time where you just got to meet people and start talking and just, yeah. just get out and, well, that's and the put thing yourself too. out there. You absolutely never know when you're going to meet that person, that one person who can turn the key for you. So right. it, it makes a lot of sense just to be as out there as you possibly can. Well, I don't know if you remember, but um, years ago, we did a little tour. We went to Chicago. I think it was... One of your artists, and I can't remember her name, but when you were working for National Records, yeah, and it it was I was with Lyric, and and it was we all kind of had a backup band that backed up Lyric and the girl artist. Yeah, we, I remember that. Yeah, we did a little like week long tour. I think we maybe did three or four days. One of them was the House of Blues in Chicago. Yeah, I remember that opened, one. Yeah, yeah, that was a good gig. Yeah, yeah, it was really fun. Um, but I gave you my demo because you were an A and R guy. Yeah, and you you emailed me back a response after hearing it that I literally kept, I printed it out and I kept with me probably right up until maybe I just moved into this house two years ago. Probably when I moved into the studio and stuff, I, I finally got rid of it. But I should have asked, was it because I was so evil or I was so nice? It was, it was 
very kind, but brutally honest. <laughs> and it, but in, in a way that I so appreciated, you know, because I needed it. And it kind of the gist was like, you know, this music is, and I was kind of doing smooth jazz at the time and, and, and it, you know, probably it wasn't good, you know? Um, and you, it was just something to the effect that your music is just too happy. You haven't lived, you got to get out of Denver, Colorado <laughs> and, and, and go see the world. You know what I mean? And, uh, so I, I kept it with me a long time just because of it's just sheer honesty, which you don't often get in, in LA that, you know, I, I know you've been in and out of LA a, a lot, so you oh, probably yeah. know this, but it's oh, a little yeah. different in New York where New York, they're, they're anxious to tell it to your face sometimes, but in LA it's just, oh, okay, we're going to go in a different direction. You know, there's never any, you, you just don't get the gig back or whatever, you know, and then no one ever tells you why. But anyway, the point is it was, but I kept it because it was honest and it, and it, and it gave me sort of a guide to at least something I need to do to get myself on a level that someone like you would appreciate. And, uh, so I, I kept it up until probably a year ago. And, uh, so anyways, I just, Thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, you know, man. It's, you're, you're no, a person see, that's, but now uh, I'm feeling bad. I should, I should, I should have lie no it was very <laughs> well then i wouldn't be where i am probably i don't oh, know then, then okay then okay. i mean it was very polite very kind it wasn't like you were using you know awful words but it right. was also extremely true it proved to be true over the years too that's probably why i kept it because i could go back to it and say like well i have done this and this you know but at any rate i really I've always appreciated it. So it was really cool when you hit me up on Facebook the other day, said you're moving here. So maybe we can, we can hang. And, yeah. Uh, and, really... and, and you know, we're doing this virtually right now, but we must do the hang. You got to come up and yeah. see my uh, very unique setup up here. That would be awesome. And uh, I really appreciate you doing this and taking the time. You bet. Man, such a cool guy. And so much information. That's it's just so fun. Uh, it also made me think about how you never know when you meet a person, like how long they're going to be in your life or in your career. You know, I met Peter twenty plus years ago. Then we did some gigs ten years ago, and then ten years later, he hits me up when he moves to LA. It's so awesome. And who knows what the future will bring? Now, you know, now we're up the street from each other. <laughs> And I've gotten some really big gigs over the years from from just an out-of-the-blue call from a person that I hadn't talked to in five or six or seven years. Um, it, it, it happens to me often. And you never know who's going to be the one who gives you that gig that, that changes your life or opens a door for you, you know, just like he said in our talk. It also gives me hope during the slow times to think about all the people who have my number and could call at any time, you know, because that, like I said, it happens often. So I try not to burn bridges and I try to always leave a positive impression because you just never know. A synclavier is a synthesizer and sampling workstation built by New England Digital Corporations originally and it first came out in 1977. And I love that he's stuck with it, you know, with the brand anyway for, for so many years. A club date in New York is a little different than a club date in LA. And in, in New York and on the East Coast in general, it usually means like a country club. And in L.A., we call those casuals because it used to be that an agent would book random people on gigs and you wouldn't know who you'd be playing with sometimes until you even got there. Um, so you just play what everybody collectively knows. It was, you know, casual. Uh, and a club gig in L.A. would probably refer to a nightclub versus a country club. 
at one point he mentioned John Foster working with Chicago, the band Chicago, but he meant to say David Foster. His wife's documentary is called There She Is, and it's on Amazon right now, so go check that out. And I'm not smart enough to explain bit rates and sample rates, but I know that the most common sample rate is 44.1, which is a typical MP3, and that's what um, most people use anymore to consume music. And it's kind of what it all ends up being for the final product. I found that to my ears, a sample rate of 48,000 samples per second sounds better even after compressed down to 44.1 for the final product. I do, on occasion, run into clients who work at 96K, and um, I can't really tell the difference. And it takes up a lot of hard drive space, and so I don't, I don't really think it's worth it to switch over for myself, myself, you know. But the most common bit rates are 16 and 24. Well, I hope you learned a lot, and you had a really good time listening. I'm a Wow, you've made it to the end. I'm hoping it's because you completely enjoyed yourself and are now filled with knowledge and inspiration to move forward with your dreams. If that is the case and you would like to stay informed of new episodes, live events, and general news, please go to divebarrockstar.com and sign up for the mailing list. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or complaints about anything you hear on the show, please email me at fanmail at divebarrockstar.com and you may even end up on the show. We at the Dive Bar Rockstar Podcast with all of our hearts, thank you for listening, and remember, it's all about dreams. Dreams.